Hello and welcome to episode number nine of Popular Volcanics, a podcast about uh, volcanoes and magma and all things related to eruptions. Uh, we are going to be talking about the Cascades today, so we're excited to have as our guest the scientist in charge of the Cascades Volcano Observatory, Dr. Seth Moran. And uh, we are excited that this is going to be our third episode in our series on volcanology basics that we have started here during the great hiatus of 2020. So I hope you enjoy it. And as always, I have my co-host, Janine. Hi, kia ora. I'm Janine Kruckner, a volcanologist at the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program, and I'm very happy to be here. With that, uh, I will introduce our guests. So uh, I will let Maybe I will let Seth introduce himself briefly, and then we'll start with some good questions. Sure thing. Well, hi, Eric, and hi, Janine, and thanks for the invitation to participate in this podcast. Um, <clears throat> I'm, like you said, the scientist in charge at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. I've been in this position since 2015, and my scientific background is that I'm a volcano seismologist. I did my grad work at the University of Washington working on a master's and PhD projects at Mount St. Helens and Mount Rainier, and then was hired on by the USGS to work up at the Alaska Volcano Observatory uh, back in 1997. Spent six really happy years up there uh, working on volcanoes, including you know, Katmai and, uh, and Shishaldan, and then um, was transferred down to the Cascades Volcano Observatory in 2003. I've been here ever since, and a uh, year after I moved down here in Mount St. Helens, had another eruption, and uh, that was a, a career-changing um, event that ripples are still um, going today. Part of the reason I'm running this podcast, of course, is that I'm teaching a volcanology class at a small liberal arts college in Ohio, and you have some experiences at a small liberal arts college in Ohio. Um, do you, can you talk a little bit about how you ended up in geology? Did you imagine you would do that when you started at a small liberal arts college in Ohio. Um, well, sure. First off, let me say, you know, Overland, go Obies. And uh, I saw when I was in, in college, saw a couple of uh, Denison Oberlin football games. And um, yeah, Oberlin's like Denison. It's a small school. Um, I went there not thinking geology is what I was going to do. It was one of a couple of things that I was interested in, uh, along with music and environmental science and uh, creative writing. And uh, just in the course of doing what you do in college or trying different things out, geology was the one that stuck. It was actually you know, pretty quick. Um, I took my first Geology 101 course uh, my fall semester of my first year, and uh, that combined with reading a John McPhee book called In Suspect Terrain were the two the things that kind of sealed the deal for me. And I, growing up, I'd been a volcano nerd, an earthquake nerd. And uh, a dinosaurs nerd, I'd lost the dinosaur part pretty quickly, but earthquakes and volcanoes kind of kind of stuck. And they were certainly reinforced by the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, which happened when I was uh, just starting high school. And uh, it made a huge impression, even from where I grew up in Massachusetts, other side of the continent from, uh, from Washington State. Um, but it was all over the news. We got you know the, the very lightest of sprinkling of ash flakes a couple days afterwards. And uh, the, the whole thing was really riveting. So when I went to Oberlin, um, I was kind of primed to at least try out this volcano thing and this geology thing uh, to see how, how it worked. Oberlin uh, was a small school that had a small department that had 
four professors at the time. I was one of four majors that graduated my year. And, uh, and so, you know, the opportunity to really specialize <clears throat> in volcanology, like you folks are right now in your, in your class, um, was not really there for me. So I did things more in the classical side of, uh, of geology with, uh, some structural geology projects and igneous petrology project, which, uh, had the cumulative effect of convincing me that I was not cut out to do field work or at least to do, um, work on old rocks. Uh, just, uh, for, uh, my, my senior year, I did a project with, um, igneous petrology of a white mountain magma series, uh, magma center. And, uh, that was, that proved to be pretty, uh, pretty tough in terms of, of capturing my interest. And so at the end of college, when I graduated, I, um, was knew I was interested in volcanoes, um, thought I needed to come at it from a different angle and more look at what was happening at, at a field that would allow me to study what's happening at a volcano now. And that really gets into geophysics um, as the sort of one of the primary ways of detecting the signs and symptoms of a volcanic system and uh, interpreting it and modeling it. So I did a, a, a pivot from geology to geophysics, and I, I won't claim that it was an easy pivot had a fair amount of math and physics to catch up on my first year. Um, uh, but uh, in the end, uh, it wound up uh, working out. I think that there's been quite a few geologic careers over the last um, few decades, at the very least, launched by reading a John McPhee book. I think that that is a common occurrence, at least in the, in the States here. And also the idea that the reason you do these different bits of research when you're in college or in grad school is to figure out what you like and what you don't. That's interesting to, to see that, you know, you were able to discern that early on that you could, um, you were interested in something, but not, not the way that you had learned it in college and wanted to try it a different way. Uh, yeah. It became really clear in field camp after my senior year um, where I, I, you know, that one, one of the things I learned in field camp was to always uh, work your way up to a ridge so you can have lunch with a view. And I remember like week five, um, getting up to the view and after lunch, all I wanted to do was go back to an air conditioned office and work on a computer. And I figured that was my calling as a geophysicist. That's, that's a pretty good sign. Yeah. For, for those of you unfamiliar, uh, with what a field camp is geologists, many geologists, most geologists these days will end up going to, you know, a four to six week, more or less what it sounds like a camp out in the field where you do geology, you map terrains, you look at rocks and figure out how they all go together, uh, and build cross sections and generally learn the skills of being a field geologist. And yes, again, one of those experiences that can let you know whether you are the sort of person who wants to spend every waking moment out in the field and somebody who who might want to take a different tack at the geosciences. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I still enjoy being out in the field. And there's a lot of field work that's involved with geophysics in terms of putting out instruments. But it's a different kind of field work. And I found that the kind of work that you do as a geophysicist out in the field does capture my imagination. And I can be out there all day and lose track of time. Um, and, and, uh, and so, you know, there, like you say, there's a variety of, of, um, different ways of working and there's also a variety of different ways of working in the field. For me, it's, uh, my, my field. I like going out in the field. That sounds weird to say. I like to gather large weights of rock <laughs> and put them on my back and carry them home, but that's what I like to do. Um, so we all have the, the niche that we have found in, in the field. So what was sort of the first, the first things that you studied in 
your field of of geophysics when it came to volcanoes? What was sort of the the first real projects that that got your got your attention? Well, um, my my first research project was on Mount St. Helens, and it was a combination of looking at what had been recorded in 1980 and beyond, and uh, to sort of continue to ask questions of the data that people had been asking at that point. I started in 1988, so that was you know eight years in. Um, to see if, you know, if there were if there were new uh, questions to be asked from that data, and then also to look at what had been recorded um, since it stopped erupting, and uh, and that was the sort of first. You know, th- th- there were a number of uh, questions that I, I asked or hypotheses that that I that I raised that proved unfruitful, and that was certainly frustrating. Um, the first one that uh, kind of led into a direction that that was fruitful was looking at the um, earthquakes that occurred at Mount St. Helens after it stopped erupting in 1986. And uh, those turned out to have a, a, um, some aspects about them that pointed to their <clears throat> occurring because magma was coming into the system again. And, uh, and that was a, a pretty cool thing to be able to say. And um, that provided some insight into you know, what was going on in Mount St. Helens. Um, and the, this whole idea of um, deep seismicity or, or earthquakes that are occurring at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 kilometers depth, uh, that, that's an unusual place for earthquakes to occur beneath volcanoes and sort of background levels. And it was also one of the first times people had uh, had the opportunity to look at a system like St. Helens that had really, you know, had a very major eruption um, and see it kind of go into this recovery phase after it stopped erupting. What does that look like and what's happening down below? And these earthquakes were one of the indications that uh, all was not quiet at the surface as, as it looked like at the surface. Working on that front, you said you ended up at in Alaska first before ending up at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. Is there anything, any particular volcanic research or event that sticks out in your mind from your time in Alaska? Well, I mean, I, the first time I set foot in the field in Alaska was at Katmai, and that was spectacular. Um, just, you know, wide open space, and you can see the geology just right there because there's there's very no, there are no trees, so there's no green stuff hiding the rocks. And, um, it was my first experience working with a helicopter and uh, just, you know, a, a lot of firsts also in a place where the climate was pretty harsh um, and you had to be careful about, uh, you know, being out there and getting stuck by the weather. Uh, first time working where there are bears, uh, all those things. And Katmai itself is also a fascinating volcanic system. It had that huge eruption in 1912, the largest eruption of the 20th century. And uh, just, uh, uh, you know, having read about the Valley of 10,000 Smokes as a, as a kid and then as a college student, it was pretty amazing to actually, uh, to actually be out there. So I, I met you, uh, Seth, first when I spent a couple of weeks at the observatory because I was working on Mount St. Helens. And something that really struck me was everyone ended up telling me in their own way how the Mount St. Helens eruption changed their lives in, in very dramatic ways. And so that was the same case for you. And, and being born six years after the eruption on the other side of the world, that eruption also changed my life. So reading about it showed me the, um, and the critical importance of not only volcano monitoring and understanding volcanoes, but communication. 
And you've been in front of a camera a few times now um, through your years. So what has been one of the biggest communication challenges you've seen in volcanology? Who uh, can go after that question in a, in a couple of different ways. The, you know, the, the first is a, a personal one, which is the challenge of communicating, especially when you're dealing with live interviews and things like that, is to react to the, the question that's coming to you and uh, give an answer that works that will be understood, that um, communicates what you wanted to communicate, and that also works for the, the person that's interviewing you. It's a, you know, it's a two-way street. They have a job to do. They need to have a product that will work for um, their newscast, their article, whatnot. And you know, we, I have a job to do. We have a job to do in communicating what's, what's going on. So uh, you know, that, that's a perennial challenge to uh, to not fall back on sound bites, to be responsive as uh, as the situation as the as the person that's interviewing needs um, during crises. Uh, just you know, this is not personal anymore. This is sort of a, a, a challenge for volcanology in, as a whole. Um, during crises, uh, the way that communication happens changes. It has to change, um, and that's just because things are happening very fast. And um, we experienced this in 2004 that uh, with Mount St. Helens erupted and uh, the first couple of days, it was a seismic swarm. And so the story was was really with the earthquakes. Um, and so I did a lot of interviews that that first day uh, or the first couple of days. Um, and they were all interviews that were local with local media folks that with uh, TV stations, we established some good rapport. And then as the earthquakes continued and as there was deformation and an explosion, um, the, all of a sudden the media uh, presence became overwhelming. And we had satellite trucks um, both at uh, outside the observatory and also up at Mount St. Helens. And uh, it was just not possible for us to do the interviews in this kind of well, you know, one-way approach. And so things got streamlined. There was a joint information center that was established and our partner agencies that had to manage the crisis were keenly interested in having the, the message only come from, from one source. And so then the challenge becomes, how do you as a community speak with one voice? And that's a challenge that um, has been out there since, um, you know, well, forever, but you know, really illustrated by things like the 1976 uh, Sufer Guadalupe crisis, where there were two different camps of scientists that were saying two different things. And the public didn't know who to listen to. And uh, that was, you know, obviously a big challenge. Um, and, you know, e even in the 2004 crisis, we had different scientists who were using nuances in a different way. Like some would use the word explosion a little bit differently than others would. And the media would pick up on that. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hugely challenging to, on the one hand, uh, as we say, feed the beast and keep the information flow going in a way that's needed you know, and the media folks have a legitimate interest and need for having information. And if we don't provide it, then there's a vacuum and somebody will come in to fill it for sure. Um, but on the other hand, um, we have to make sure the information that's going out is vetted. And when you have something that's developing really fast, that's a huge, huge challenge. And on the inside uh, of, of the response with the scientific community that's involved in the active response, keeping everybody up to speed on the latest developments is also really, really challenging. And in recent years, it's been made much more um, possible with the advent of social media tools 
uh, like um, that that are that that can be um, secure. So those are things like uh, Slate and Mattermost, and uh, and even you know Microsoft Teams. Um, and uh, and so yeah, I mean you know, Janine, it's a long answer, but communication is at the root of everything we do. And if there's poor communication wherever. The, 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 the chain is, if it's communication with media, if it's communication with partner agencies, if it's poor communication, the crisis response is not going to go well. We talk a lot about what happens during crises, but as we know, especially in the Cascades, there haven't been a lot of crises. So um, can you walk us through like what's the daily experience of being the scientist in charge at CVO? Yeah, well, I try not to be too defensive with the Cascades not erupting very frequently and having an observatory here, but um, the, you know, the, the, the struggle for us is to maintain some level of readiness while facing the reality that we're probably not going to get an eruption that, you know, th- that soon. In, in, on, on average, in the Cascades, there are two eruptions a century. Um, on average, they last maybe about a total of 10 years total. So what we say is about 10% of the time, there's an eruption to be working with. And the other 90% of the time, the job is to be ready. Um, so you know, what, what being ready means is having monitoring instrumentation in place, uh, having uh, you know, as, as rock solid an understanding of the volcanic system as we can, which is research on both the geology and the geophysics side of things. And it's also having really good relationships with partner agencies for each of the volcanic systems. And so that's, you know, outreach and we have to maintain that because rotation in our partner agencies is, is pretty um, quick. Every five years on average, I think uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty much complete turnover. And, uh, and so we have to sort of keep, keep ourselves out there in the community to make sure people know who we are and know what these weird words are that we use like Strombolian or Lahar um, so that when something does happen, the next time something does happen, um, we'll be starting off at, at a much you know, uh, further, further along point uh, than we usually are. But um, so you know, on a day-to-day basis, um, that's, that's the job. And in terms of uh, the volcanoes themselves, um, uh, one really key role of observatories that's not often talked about is rumor control. And we get calls. We just got one this last week, not call, but a, a, a question that came into our a social media account about um, volcanoes in the Cascades. This question was about Mount Baker and people see clouds that look weird. They see shadows in places where they've never seen dark patches before. And uh, without being able to assess what's happening at a volcano, um, the idea that there's an eruption happening, you know, that, 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 could, that, could, that could get going. And uh, you see examples of that in the newspapers in the 1800s um, where uh, you see pictures of things that nowadays we would call lenticular clouds that back then got reported as blah, blah, blah volcano was, was uh, you know, had an explosion. Um, so uh, we, we you know, do that kind of rumor control. And we also do get um, signs of restlessness at volcanoes. And uh, we just had one yesterday um, at um, Mount Hood where there was a couple hours long swarm that featured, you know, well over a hundred earthquakes. And um, it's uh, important in those instances for us to have a good sense of what's normal so that we can give our partner agencies um, a sense of whether or not they should be concerned about uh, something that, that just happened. And at Mount Hood uh, back in 2001, there was a magnitude four plus uh, earthquake that people felt like gangbusters. 
And uh, that was a you know, really important time to have a good network out there and to be able to tell folks this is not something that uh, that we believe is leading to an eruption. I know that when uh, Mike Poland from the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory was our guest, he has to deal with a lot of um, rumor and, and incorrect information. Misinformation. Misinformation about Yellowstone. Although I feel like the Cascades, there's few, many fewer sort of rumors and conspiracy theories about your work in the, at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. Oh, relative to Yellowstone and the things that Mike has to work, uh, has to uh, deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, we're, we're not even close, but it has happened uh, during the 2004 St. Helens uh, eruption. I got my first piece of hate mail from somebody who was saying, you know, how dare you underrepresent the hazard that's coming from this volcano. And um, Pete, so it, it, it does happen. And the next time we get a volcano that's doing something uh, pretty serious, uh, I fully expect uh, our lives to be like what Mike is right now. That's a bit of a concern. <laughs> it's, it's a big job that you guys have. And, uh, you know, we all watched with the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory with Kilauea. There was such an incredible job of so much information coming out daily on all the different social media channels, as well as news interviews. Um, since the last two thousand, since the two thousand four Mount Saint Helens eruption, so much has changed. Like the science has changed, populations have grown. We have more travel, more air traffic. So, with what's what the current day situation is, what keeps you up at night? Oof. Um, well, uh, not being ready is the the thing that um, drives me. Drives you know a lot of us. Uh, to sort of to sort of keep on working, we've we've all of us have had the experience or read stories about uh, volcanoes uh, that have woken up, and you just haven't had the right kind of instrumentation out there. And as a result, there's lots of uncertainty. And the the time to install that instrumentation is not when the volcano wakes up. It's at that point dangerous to work there, and you've also lost a couple of days um, at least of a head start in terms of of getting yourself um, getting yourself caught up. Um, the, uh, you know, like you say, there's been an awful lot of development on the social media side of things back in 2004, YouTube hadn't been created yet. And, uh, and it was the most intense experience I've ever lived through it was the first three weeks of the media presence there. And I can only imagine what it's going to be like now if, uh, when, when we, when we next have something going, um, the Kilauea eruption in 2018 was, uh, eye-opening. Um, it was actually reassuring in a lot of ways um, because this was the first time for um, the USGS observatories uh, that we were uh, formally brought into a uh, response that was uh, headed up by emergency managers. We were embedded within emergency operations centers. We were scattered across five places, plus people doing things remotely. And uh, the communication side of things worked really well. Uh, like you said, Janine, on the social media side of things, you know, th that, that was a huge success story. And um, it was you know, amplified by our colleagues out in uh, academia who really helped support the messaging and um, you know, provided a, a fairly overall robust uh, information, information front. But that social media effort required somebody to be on it 24-7. And uh, there was a rotation of four people that traded off uh, rotations every day. It was a tremendous load, a tremendous amount of effort. And uh, the eye-opening thing for a lot of us is 
um, it was was that level, what, how much effort that was required, and that the next eruption that we get going, uh, especially one uh, where it's accessible, uh, will be uh, at least that much uh, in terms of effort and resources, people's time, uh, as as Kilauea is. And I, you know, if if we have something like Mount Rainier get going, it's going to be two, three times the level of effort to keep up with. Uh, what what's needed, and and uh, and that's a challenge that we're you know mindful of and are talking about trying to plan for, um, and you know it's that's that's all you can do. So I know with the different observatories, because of the level of activity, uh, they must have sort of a different balance between sort of the monitoring. And the research side of things. So a lot of the times when we talk about volcano observatories, people think that it's all about the monitoring. But there's an awful lot of, of research that happens at the observatories. Do you, can you talk a little bit about sort of the balance between the two and how they how they fit together? Because I, I think people might be surprised about some of that. Yeah. Well, we, we think of uh, in, in observatory life, we think of our, our work as grouping into one of three categories. Uh, there's monitoring, there's outreach, and there's research. And there's lots and lots of bleed over between those two. Monitoring provides data that informs research questions and research understandings inform monitoring strategies and both of them feed into outreach. Um, but you know, it, research is super, super critical. Um, there's there's a, couple of, a couple of ways. Uh, I, I sort of think of the work that we do as, as applied and uh, on a you know, very basic level, understanding what a volcano has done in the past of mapping out the volcanic history through going out in the field and uh, going into gullies and um, looking at um, cross sections and uh, getting into the geochemistry of what's come out and uh, looking into um, some of the eruption dynamics and what might have been going on in the volcano. And just, you know, even the basic thing of how big was that last eruption, that's a field research project. Um, those kinds of things are, are super important for informing uh, what we call the frequency magnitude um, distribution for an individual volcanic center. How frequently does it erupt and how large are the eruptions? And uh, once you get a volcano erupting, that's, or restless, that's the playbook. And that's what feeds the volcano hazards assessments um, that you start giving people to help them understand uh, what, what may happen. Um, another realm that research is, uh, is super important for is uh, anything that provides constraints on models of the magmatic system. And uh, that, that includes things like, you know, where is magma stored? Uh, roughly speaking, do we have a sense of um, volume of storage units? And those kinds of things come into play when um, you're looking at um, geophysical signs of unrest. You get uh, surface deformation, you get earthquakes. You can locate the deformation sources. You can locate the earthquakes. And uh, if you have a model in which those deformation sources or those earthquake sources can be plotted, then uh, you're that much further down the road to understanding what's actually happening when you get uh, a sequence. And just as a really, really a quick example of, of that, this uh, earthquake sequence we had at Mount Hood yesterday, uh, there's been research that's been done on uh, earthquakes at Mount Hood, um, re research that at this point is almost 15 years old. And um, that research indicates that the earthquakes that are occurring where these earthquakes occurred uh, yesterday, um, they're not right under the summit. They're a little ways to the south. We think those are tectonic earthquakes. They're not actually directly related to magma or magmatic processes 
uh, in the volcanic system. And that, that kind of thing helps enormously when uh, you get a swarm and you um, aren't sort of left with this, well, it could be magma, it could be something else. There's been so much incredible change in the science and what we know um, in very recent years with international research and all of us learning from each other. What's been the most fascinating or interesting change or discovery during your career? Gosh, uh, I'm not sure I could pin down one. Um, Top three. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, so from from the from the seismology perspective, um, I, you know, I, there there are there have been surprises like every oh, five years. And I just st- starting from a very basic thing of uh, back in the early days, volcanoes are monitored with with very basic uh, seismic instrumentation um, that only measured. A certain frequency of waveforms uh, above a, above a certain frequency, we call them high frequency earthquakes or high frequency sensors. And uh, about two decades ago, um, a more sophisticated kind of sensor that we call broadband seismometers uh, started becoming feasible to deploy. And uh, they're expensive; they're more power hungry. Um, and there was debate about whether or not they were worth putting on volcanoes. And uh, gosh, it's interesting to look back now, twenty years, and think, well, ha, ha, ha. I mean, they're super critical. There's things that we see with these broadband instruments that we just were not seeing before um, that became feasible to do. Um, I think, uh, you know, St. Helens obviously was was a huge marker uh, eruption in pretty much every part of volcanology that you can think of. Uh, the one that's still resonating today uh, locally, but I think internationally as well, is you know, the fact that volcanoes can fall apart in such an, a catastrophic way as Mount St. Helens did, and how long-lasting the effects of that eruption are in terms, still are, in terms of the amount of sediment that uh, they put into, that Mount St. Helens put into uh, the drainages, especially the North Fork of the Tootle River. And society is still dealing with the issue of <clears throat> sediment load in, uh, in a drainage 40 years after and spending hundreds of millions of dollars to mitigate it. And uh, you know that's that's a lesson for any volcano that produces a lot of sediment that gets into a drainage is that you're going to be dealing with it for decades, possibly centuries down the road. Which is you know it's a, an incredible messaging point that uh, we need to be emphasizing for uh, land managers, emergency managers, community leaders that if you get a volcano erupting, it's not over when it's over. And I, I think that's uh, for me, it's been that, that's been one of the, the sort of prime. Uh, learning, learning lessons learned from St. Helens and one of the prime messaging points that we uh, continue to drive home here in the Cascades. In terms of probability, Mount St. Helens is the most likely to be the next one to erupt, but that's different than talking about what might be the most dangerous or the biggest threat. What would you point to as the, probably the, the most dangerous and biggest threat and how do you come to that conclusion when you're thinking about volcanoes in general? Well, you guys asked me earlier what keeps me up at night. Um, Mount Rainier and Mount Hood and eruption to either of those volcanoes is uh, definitely the ones that keep me up. And the reason for that is that in both instances, society is really exposed to uh, what could happen. Uh, at Mount Rainier, there's been a lot that's that's been said and written about the, um, the potential for large lahars to come off the volcano. Uh, there have been eight or nine that have come off in the last 5,600 years that have reached into what are now really highly settled Parts of the Puget Sound area and development is is, is rapid in uh, in a number of these drainages. Uh, there was an event around 1500 AD 
uh, large lahar that started as a landslide with no known association with an eruption. Um, and uh, that reached into communities that are now um, populated by people, you know, on, in the tens of thousands. Um, so, uh, you know, that 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 would be will be an incredibly fraught situation. The next time the Mount Rainier wakes up, um, all of a sudden it brings in this large lahar hazard and uh, people are going to society is going to have high expectations about our ability to give them warning. And, uh, you know, literally tens of thousands of lives are going to depend on us being able to do that. So that's um, that, you know, even though, like you said, it's not as frequently active as Mount St. Helens, uh, it's the, the, the exposure factor from Mount Rainier is really high. On the Mount Hood side of things, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the issue there is that uh, there are communities and ski areas and two major highways that lie within the near field hazard zone. And the near field hazard zone is where uh, volcanic products can reach. Uh, with very little warning, um, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes time frame, that's where pyroclastic flows would be impacting. That's where ballistics could be impacting. And uh, there's the town of, of government camp. There are um, <clears throat> at least, you know, there are four ski areas that are um, within the near field hazard zone. And then there's uh, highways 26 and highway 35, which um, are both, especially highway 26, are major transportation corridors. Uh, that are used, you know, quite heavily. And Mount Hood is where Portland goes to ski. So um, <clears throat> that's a situation where, you know, Mount Hood doesn't erupt very, very, in a very big way, doesn't explode uh, uh, in a ca nearly as a catastrophic a way as uh, Mount St. Helens did. But it's a place where small explosions and small pyroclastic density currents would have a catastrophic impact. And uh, the last eruption that happened at Mount Hood was uh, about 1781 to 1791, about 10 years long. Uh, it featured a whole series of off-again, on-again uh, dome building and collapse type events with pyroclastic flows coming off and lahars coming off. And the idea of society living with something like that for 10 years, where they're sort of intermittent, it's on, intermittently it's paused, and you know, sort of brings up visions of uh, highway crews stopping people on Highway 26 and letting people th through single file with flaggers and the flaggers having a radio communication right to the observatory so that we can give them a moment's, you know, instant notice when we think something's happening. I just think uh, the expectation of society on us as volcanologists is going to be too high. And we're, um, you know, the, the, the main solution is going to be to evacuate and not you know, and close those highways, just like what we're doing right now with COVID-19 is social distancing. Nobody's working, you know, full op stop. That's the safest thing to do. And I think society is not going to be able to hack it for 10 years. And I just envision all kinds of angst and whoever's SIC is going to go gray really fast if they haven't already. So having met a lot of people that work at the Cascades Volcan Observatory, you're, you have an organization there full of really wonderful people who are really passionate about the science and about helping people and communities when they need to. Um, and we know how much trust is important for people listening to an organization like an observatory. So what's something you really wish people knew about the Cascades Volcano Observatory? It's staffed by people who really care and who are really talented. And um, it's also, you know, uh, the, the, the work that is being done is being done in a community 
of researchers from around the world and that collectively we've got this, that this, this is the group that people want to have working in the cascades and, you know, by, by, uh, the, the expansive research community, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, researchers like Adam Kent and, uh, Carrie Cooper and you, Eric, that have done work at, at Mount Hood. And, uh, it's going to take a collective effort and we're, we're, uh, actively engaged in that and, um, that the people in the observatory really truly do care. And we saw this in Kilauea 2018, that, that, uh, with the H our HVO colleagues, you know, it was their home. It was, uh, the friends of, of, it was some of their friends that were losing homes and, um, they really cared. And that caring translated to incredible dogged effort for months, you know, maintaining a pace that was, that was, uh, you know, a high burnout factor, uh, for sure. And uh, it's, you know, it's a, that level of caring that will translate into as successful a response as can be mustered. So I have a couple questions that came from some of the students in my class. Um, and uh, let's see, the, the first one is one that kind of gets at um, something you touched upon in terms of the monitoring all of the volcanoes along the Cascades. Uh, you know, one of the students asked, um, about why there might be so little monitoring around various volcanoes. And that made me also think of how we have um, the potential to increase some of that monitoring uh, through the the NVUs, the National Volcano Early Warning System. Now, of course, these days with what's going on with the economy, it's hard to predict what the future will look like for that. But c can you speak a little bit to the sort of state of monitoring and what you're hoping the, the future, the next five or 10 years is going to bring for monitoring the volcanoes, the Cascades? Yeah, Um so, you know, right now the status is variable. We have volcanoes like Mount St. Helens uh, and Mount Rainier, which are uh, at or nearing the kind of gold standard for volcano monitoring networks. And then there are other volcanoes like Glacier Peak or Mount Baker, which have just one or two sensors on them. And uh, we recognize that that's not a good situation. And we're working to improve that. The um, Some of the complications uh, involve resources, among other things. Um, but also, uh, there's a lot of land use restrictions, and it turns out that uh, the, the significant majority of volcanoes in the Cascades are in uh, areas that are either national parks or that are wilderness. And uh, both of those come with very strict regulations about the use of motors, and about the leaving behind of, um, of structures, like enclosures for, for instruments. And, uh, you know, both of those, if you read into the Wilderness, uh, the Wilderness Act, um, both of those are mentioned as being activities that are not um, allowed in wilderness. And so one of the things that we've spent a lot, a lot of time on, a lot of energy, a lot of money is in um, working to get permits in those in those kinds of situations. Uh, we were successful with Mount Hood. Uh, it was a um, five plus year long process. And uh we're able to have something concluded last year to add three, four more stations uh, at Mount Hood that, were, that are all in the wilderness. Uh, we're in the middle of one right now with Glacier Peak, where we are hoping to add four more stations. Um, and uh, that's, you know, we've been at that in 2017 and we're, and we're, and we're still going at it. Um, 
So, you know, that we, we work with the resources we're given. And uh, if, if, uh, if the resources are, are there to fund things like uh, um, acquisition of sensors and uh, to bring in um, a sufficient staff to, to do the installations, then, then we'll do those at a quicker, uh, quicker clip. Um, and, uh, you know, if the resources aren't there, we, we still have a strategy. We still have a prioritization and we will make progress. It just won't be as fast. Another question that I was asked to uh, ask to ask uh, is <laughs> a little bit different. The, one of the students is curious, is there a ranking of prestige of the different volcano observatories? <laughs> Oh boy! Well, <clears throat> there's two answers to that. First is, of course, the Cascade <laughs> is the most prestigious CVO. But the other answer is, I'm not touching that with a ten foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> they are they are very different and in very different locations. Um, yeah, no, they they are different. And, and you know, I've I've worked uh, for two of the five, and um, and I, I've I've been you know uh, worked legally with the others. We all have different roles, different niches. And, uh, you know, AVO is the place where a lot of the ash and aviation uh, work, understanding about the hazard and understanding about the monitoring uh, has been hashed out. Also, where, you know, the, the most frequently active uh, chain is they get, you know, two, three, four, sometimes more than that, eruptions a year to, to handle. So they're at the forefront of alarming. Hawaii's got the, uh, well, had the perennial 1983 to 2018 Pu'uo eruption and uh, and it also has sort of the unique situation that their community is living on the volcano. So uh, the sort of living with the hazard is you can't get much, much more living with the hazard than, than that. Um, the California Volcano Observatory is, is where the labs are um, and where uh, they've got with, through close ties to Stanford University and, and the Bay Area. Um, that's where a lot of the the. Um, uh, traditional research core of the volcano program has, has been. And then, you know, Cascades were kind of, we share aspects of all of those at the CVO. We've got, you know, places where people are living with the hazard. Um, we have volcanoes that, that are, are, are quieter, but when they do erupt, we've had a couple erupt on us. And so we have some similarities with, uh, with AVO. Um, and, uh, so we, we sort of, I think CVO, I think is sort of more of a hybrid of a place where, uh, we've got active volcanic processes to work on, but there's also, <clears throat> um, time available because they're not responding as frequently as like AVO is to be doing more, more basic research. And to become scientist in charge of a volcano observatory, I know this is, it's a rotational position if I understand it correctly, or how does one become the SIC and how long does that term last? Uh, short straw. Um, <clears throat> the, the, uh, it's the, the term usually lasts about five years. Uh, it's something that you have to sort of achieve a certain level of experience and I guess for lack of a better word, uh, reputation within the broader volcano community to, to be, to be eligible to apply for. Um, and, uh, and when you, when you get it, that's the end of your research. That's for sure. For, um, for as long as you're there, it's really hard to maintain that because you become a manager. And uh, the managing is so, some parts of it are like any other management uh, position. 
there's personnel issues, there's office office management issues, there's budgeting, there's short-term, long-term strategizing, uh, there's thinking about you know morale in the office, and there's thinking about things like who's going to get which office um, and and things like that. Then there are aspects of it that are much more um, uh, specific to the, the volcano world of uh, you know, sort of keeping in mind the overall direction of the Volcano Observatory of, you know, thinking about these three pillars of what we do, the volcano, the monitoring, the research and the outreach, um, and having a sort of a, a sense of where the observatory needs to be putting its efforts at any given time. And also being able to understand the science so that you can represent folks that are working in the observatory and also advocate for them. And uh, one of the things I enjoy the most about this is that uh, in observatories, you've got a really diverse range of specialties where there are geochemists, there are igneous petrologists, there are physical volcanologists, there are hydrologists, seismologists, uh, geodesists, GIS folks, there's computer programmers, um, and there's admin staff. And all of them are you know, super important to work as an integrated team to make everything happen. And um, it's really fun as uh, as a scientist in charge to sort of pop around from half hour conversation to half hour conversation and bounce from talking earthquakes to talking igneous petrology to talking gas geochemistry and so on. And I, I kind of feel like it's geology 101 all over again. And, uh, you know, the depth isn't there as much because I'm not doing my own research, but the breadth is really uh, spectacular. So as the scientist in charge, you're not likely to be the first person to rush out to the, a volcano when it starts getting restless. No, no, I'll be the first person that will be uh, on the phone talking to all different kinds of people. But no, that's yeah, definitely that that's not the role of the scientist in charge is to be out there uh, leading the cavalry. That's an enormous job and a huge responsibility. Thank you for your time and effort in that. How do you how do you keep sane? I understand you're a musician and you've also written a volcano song, Vancouver, Vancouver. So do you have a lot of things like that living in such a gorgeous area that as a human outside of being a volcanologist keeps you going? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I think I mentioned at the very beginning that when I went to college, I, I was uh, toying with a couple different ideas and one was, was doing music. And I, I've played music for all of my life and it's it's always been an important thing to be doing. It's a different way of of interacting with your brain and with other people. And um, I, I find that to be you know a really important way to uh, turn my brain off and and uh, and focus on other things. The you know the the other things that I like doing are you know going for walks and and uh, and hanging out with my with my family. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's important for everybody to, to have things like that. And, um, you know, this particular time, we're all working through crises um, with the COVID-19. And uh, it's, I think, all important for all of us to find uh, things that we can do that will take our minds off of what's, uh, what's going on. So, you know, music for sure has been uh, an important part of that for me. All right. Um, I'm trying to, do you have anything you'd like to add? Seth, to uh, make sure that people people here coming from coming from you and from CVO, uh, hang in there, everybody. That's that's the message I think we've been trying to. We have ended like every podcast on right now is is hanging in there, and you know we are all. You know, I keep on thinking of like what are some of the distractions that I would normally be looking for don't exist, so we have to even go 
sort of deeper in our to our bench to find things that replace like i don't know baseball season which would be going on right now all right so thanks again seth for joining us here on popular volcanics to talk about life at the cascades volcano observatory hopefully um you'll get to return to your building sometime soon uh, but we will have to wait and see but in the meantime uh thanks again for chatting with us you bet thanks eric thanks janine with that uh, we will bid you adieu from yet another episode of popular volcanics feel free to let us uh, know if you have any questions for future episodes you can get a hold of us on twitter at pop volcanics or check out the website at popularvolcanics.weebly.com I'll have some links there from this episode to point you towards uh, the CVO website and other such things but with that next week uh, we will actually talk about volcanoes and climate to everybody out there thanks for listening stay safe and we'll talk to you next week Mm -hmm.